Hello there, space fans, and welcome to another edition of Last Week in Space, the Supercluster podcast that brings you all the biggest updates from the world of space exploration. I'm joined today again by Chris Jebhart, Assisting Managing Editor of NASASpaceflight.com, and he is down in Florida, and I am at Supercluster headquarters in New York City. How's it going, Chris? It's going really well. How are you doing up there, Rob? Oh, I'm, you know, missing Cape, but that's another story. And uh, I was just on Twitter, Chris, and I saw a really funny tweet. And it's basically a tweet from the newly established, is it the sixth branch of the government? Is that what we're calling it? Uh, the United yes. States, the United States Space Force. Now, the tweet that I am referring to, I'm trying to pull it up. They Did they delete it? Did it they really like delete they, it? No, I I don't see it anymore. But anyway, there might be multiple Space Force accounts. But anyway, it was a tweet of a Time Magazine article, an exclusive that they got about two Russian satellites that are sort of chasing down an American national security satellite. Now, personally, I did not look into this issue, so I cannot speak to its validity, but it is Time Magazine and it looks like their source is a Pentagon official. Anyway, that is the nature of national security, and that is the nature of superpowers trying to one-up each other. Actually, space is another I actually have the tweet. Day. Okay, go ahead and read that tweet for us. Yeah, so, so it was from U.S. Space Command, not U.S. Space Force. Ah, that's um, where we mix it up. Okay, same yes, thing, Yes, and in the my tweet opinion. says, the U.S. prefers that space remain free of conflict. Mm-hmm. Potential adversaries have turned space into a warfighting domain these recent activities are concerning and do not reflect the behavior of a responsible spacefaring nation. So what they are referring to is, is the fact that two Russian satellites are currently trailing a multi-billion dollar U.S. spy satellite. They have been doing this for several weeks now. They've made a couple of close approaches, and now they're basically flying in formation with it. So basically, two Russian satellites are spying on a U.S. spy satellite, but... It's kind of important to note that our spy satellites from the National Reconnaissance Office, from the military, from the DOD, mm-hmm. are are in part for warfighting on the That's ground. Ex- yeah, so and, it's like... And the U.S. and U.S. armed conflicts around the globe. So it's kind of interesting that the Space Force would... Not the Space Force, I'm sorry. The Space Command would say that they want space to remain free of conflict and that without naming Russia directly, they're saying that Russia has turned space into a warfighting domain mm. when they're trailing a spy satellite. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. You know it, what the best it, way to explain this, Chris, is that meme with the two Spider-Mans pointing at each other. That's the one yes. I'm going to use for this one. That's how I'm going to encapsulate this little drama on Twitter. But you know what? The the point of this is space is already a warfighting domain. We use satellites to you know run reconnaissance during the syrian civil war we use satellites to coordinate strikes in afghanistan like that is the big elephant in the room in the space industry is that it is a defense industry the big contractors boeing lockheed spacex everyone else basically has some kind of air force or dod or nro or darpa contract and the end game of those contracts is to provide either defensive weapons or offensive weapons or launch delivery systems that carry those weapons to space. And when I say weapon, I also encapsulate defensive and offensive hacking satellites, which the Russians also have, apparently. So the reason we bring this up was for this one point. Uh, Cape Canaveral Air Force Station 
is going to be called Cape Canaveral Space Force Station soon. That's why that tweet reminded me of Space Force. And Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but Patrick Air Force Base will now be called Patrick Space Force Base. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. That is pretty uh, cool. Yes. And then the corresponding Cape Canaveral Space Force Station as well. Right. That's and pretty we, cool. And we're not entirely sure when they're going to change their name. There was a little bit of a gaffe during one of the Solar Orbiter pre-launch conferences where NASA accidentally said mm-hmm. that they had already changed names. Right. And this that was incorrect. Led to, yes, that led to a correction from the 45th Space Wing that they haven't changed names yet, but that sometime in the, in the month of February, we will find out when that name change will take place. And let me go ahead and read a statement here from Jim Williams, who runs all you know communications for the 45th and media liaison. He Agreed. said on Twitter, he said on Twitter on February 8th, this is after that little hiccup that Chris just mentioned from NASA to clear things up. Cape Canaveral and Patrick have not changed their names. There was confusion after the 45th announcement and NASA mistakenly called it Cape Canaveral Space Force Station publicly. The 45th will announce within the next 30 days when the names will change. And this is a significant thing. This is you're changing the name of one of the most historic sites in the world and in, in the United States. So it will be a big thing. And it'll be a change uh, for us journalists, too. We, I mean, Chris and I have been working down there for many years. So we're going to have to change the name of the place that we're reporting from most of the time. We will. But it's it's notable, too, that this is not the first time um, right, that, too. that the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station has undergone a name change. It was originally the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Mm-hmm. And then after President Kennedy's assassination, the name was very controversially changed to Cape Kennedy. Kennedy, um, right. And a lot of there was a lot of people upset with that because of the culturally significant the cultural significance of the name Canaveral to the Florida area. So it was changed back to the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. And now it'll be the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station and everything as well. So not the first time we've had a name change, but it kind of sounds like this one's gonna stick. Right. So yeah, speaking of the Space Coast, Chris and I kind of wanted to give our listeners a an update on the commercial crew program i know a lot of you are on twitter and on social media you've seen some of the drama some of the updates over the last couple weeks chris and i are going to dive into them i think we'll start with one news bit that we saw today a beautiful photo coming from spacex social media it was a photo of the dragon that is now heading to cape canaveral for the first human commercial crew launch, which is looking like it's going to be SpaceX only because of all the updates we're about to tell you about. And the photo was with many, I would say most of uh, SpaceX's employees standing in front of the Dragon. They all look super excited. The company's feeling uh, very hopeful right now that they're just a few months away from that first launch. And Chris, we do have somewhat of a date on that first Crew Dragon launch? We do. A reporter kind of made it public this week that the no earlier than, the absolutely no earlier than target date mm-hmm. is May 7th. Which is, that it's exciting to have a date. Now, I need to stress, just as every single SpaceX or otherwise kind of mission, that this is a general planning date. Yes, do not that expect it. that to <laughs> no, stick. No, yeah. not at all. And like, I know how hard it is to to plan around this. So does Chris. When will we know the real date? My personal opinion, a couple weeks before, 
we have a static fire, you know, we'll, we'll know, I think, a couple of weeks before when the actual, actual day is. Yeah. So here's how it happens, right? Is the first thing, the first thing that occurs, right, is that NASA, and in this case, SpaceX, they get together, they look at the technical readiness of the vehicle, which includes the Falcon 9 rocket itself, the Dragon trunk, and the Crew Dragon. They, and, and Elon and NASA were both very upfront after in-flight aboard a month ago that those are not the long lead items. Those are not the schedule driving items. Um, right. th- those will be ready in March. So first thing first is they, they look at where the hardware is. Then they look at where the crew training is for what kind of a mission it's going to be. Because what we don't know yet is whether or not this DM2 mission or demo2 mission with Bob Bankin and Doug Hurley from NASA is going to be a one week up down sortie mission test right. flight or whether it's going to be a more long duration mission given the U.S. side of of the station having to drop down from four crew members to just one in April. And obviously the mission profile, whether it's going to be short or long, is going to have a big impact on the actual launch date. Right, because that will determine how much additional training beyond what the crew has already trained for for that one week mission as planned. If if there's an extension to that mission, they have to undergo some different kinds of training for ISS robotics operations and station spacewalk operations, because one of them would be a robotics officer and one of them would be a spacewalking officer should that be needed. That seems like a lot of extra stuff there, Chris. <laughs> it, it does, but but more so than that, that's not the last thing they do, right? So so those are the first things they look at, and then that kind of gives them a general, okay, the vehicle and the crew will be ready from from a technical readiness standpoint and a, and a training standpoint by this date, but now what's the Soyuz launch schedule for crew rotations? Because Soyuzes are still doing the crew rotations right now, and there is one in April, one launch and one landing of a Soyuz. So then you have to look at that. Then you have to look at where the Dragon schedule is for CRS-20. And when that comes back, that one's launching no earlier than the 2nd of March. Then you have to look at where Cygnus and G-13 will be in its schedule and where the progresses are. And you have to look at all of the visiting vehicles going up and back from the station. And you have to look at what the... Russian EVA side of it is, what the American spacewalk side of things are. And then you have to tell all of your international partners, including Canada, Europe, Russia, and Japan, okay, this is the preliminary date we're aiming for, heads up, you know, this is what we're planning. And that all has to kind of get worked out. And that gives you a date, right? So that's all on the back end side of the planning. But I, I would assume that given the interest in this mission, if early May is the time frame they're actually aiming for here, which would make sense, given what Elon and NASA said after in-flight abort, that it would be sometime in quarter two of 2020. May is the dead center of quarter two. That would make sense. Then I would I would assume here sometime in March is when NASA would at the latest be releasing the call for media accreditation, which would be our official confirmation of what the date is. And even that date will be loose when we get the applic when we do the application. 
Right, because then, yeah. then you, then exactly what you were saying. Like, then there has to be the actual mating of the vehicle together, the static fire, the flight readiness reviews, the final parachute tests for Dragon mm-hmm. have to take place. You know, all, all of these things are still fluid, but at least we'll have some sort of a target date for that. And it, yes, it's ex- it's a, it's really exciting because we're we're in this final stretch, and everyone can feel it. We are. And man, you know, look at that photograph of all of those people who have worked on Crew Dragon from SpaceX, the smiles, the the elation, like you can feel everything. And I think it's really noteworthy, too, that, you know, this is it, right? Like what last week also made clear of what we're going for is barring something that we really don't want to see, barring an issue with the Falcon 9 on the inter on on the missions prior to this coming up in February, March and April. Mm -hmm. Barring an issue with that, we're in there. Starliner is in no position to be launching crew anytime soon. So, no. and we'll get to that. <laughs> Dragon, Dragon's yeah. up. SpaceX yeah. is up, and they stand a very good chance of being the one to fulfill the the capture the flag moment, and and that refers to on the final shuttle flight STS one thirty five of Atlantis back in July of twenty eleven. Chris Ferguson and Doug Hurley, the commander and the pilot of that mission, left behind a small American flag on the International Space Station with the understanding that the first commercial company to launch a crew will capture it and bring it back home. And of course, Doug Hurley will be on the SpaceX mission and Chris Mm -hmm. Ferguson will be on the Starliner mission. mission. So it's personal to both of them. But, you know, Mm -hmm. this is a this was a fun part of the competition right that that kind of started when atlantis retired the shuttle program gosh nine years ago now and here we are a long time yeah we've been waiting patiently for years (laughs) and we have and you know this is what it looks like you know barring something unforeseen it looks like spacex will be first yep and something big happened this week well it didn't happen this week a few of us actually knew of this story for about a month now but uh, yeah. Michael Sheets from CNBC broke the story officially yesterday. Bill Gerstenmaier, who was famously pushed out of NASA not too long ago, the former director of spaceflight at HQ at NASA, is now going to be a consultant for rocket reliability, which is basically also encapsulates human spaceflight since humans are flying on the Falcon 9. And we'll be working under Hans Konisman, vice president of reliability at SpaceX. And this move is astronomical for SpaceX. It adds so much credibility to their human spaceflight program and brings a, a name that has a legacy, a very strong, long legacy at NASA, over to SpaceX. Chris, what's your take on this? Uh, This was one of the most brilliant moves SpaceX has ever done. Agreed with you 100%. There is no bigger name Mm -hmm. in human spaceflight than Bill Gerstemeyer. He was, in many ways, in the last few years, the voice of reason within NASA for Orion and, Mm -hmm. and for commercial crew. He was the person saying, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at the problem, Mm -hmm. right? After years of underfunding for both Orion and SLS and Artemis and the commercial crew program, you cannot simply throw more money at it to accelerate him in these late stage games that you cannot sacrifice safety because you want to launch by a certain date. He was very 
adamant about that in speaking truth to a political will. Mm -hmm. And he was effectively fired. And we say effectively because as a government employee, it's incredibly hard to be fired. Very hard to be fired from NASA too. Right. So he wasn't technically fired. He was, Mm -hmm. he was removed from his position. He was demoted. He was Mm -hmm. publicly in in many ways humiliated by that. Yes. Agreed. We did an episode about it. Yeah. And, and he retired from NASA. Mm -hmm. I I mean, it is a huge self-inflicted loss on NASA especially since the person who replaced him, we're going to get to him in the next Mm -hmm. segment because he said something shocking on Friday, last Friday. Okay. The Starliner event. But but (laughs) there is no bigger name and more respected name in human spaceflight than Bill Gerstenmaier. And I'm not just saying that as someone who's involved with this, here's how respected he is. When When it broke yesterday that he had been hired by SpaceX, the head of Roscosmos, Dmitry mm-hmm. Roscosnin, tweeted his immense congratulations, called Gerstenmeyer his friend. Let me, uh, Chris, let me let me read Rogozin's comment. I have it up here because it is do, yes. it was startling. Congrats to SpaceX with hiring an outstanding aerospace engineer, former NASA head of human exploration program, William Gerstenmeyer. His role in the ISS project was tremendous. I wish my friend Bill every success in his new position. A pretty startling statement from the head of Roscosmos. Let me read also a statement from the former head of NASA, an appointee from the Obama era, Charles Bolden, also a decorated shuttle astronaut. His statement was, a tremendous addition to the SpaceX team while keeping Bill in the greater human spaceflight family. He will help make an already excellent team even better. Congrats to you, Bill, and to SpaceX. Charlie B. Such a sweet message. It really is. And I mean, that just goes to show you mm-hmm. how incredibly respected he is. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I stand by that statement that it is a stunningly self-imposed loss for NASA and a tremendous move by, by SpaceX. To get I want to recall... This is not just for commercial crew and Dragon right. Ball. Certainly it is. This is for Starship as well. Absolutely. And that's what I was hoping you'd bring up because this is not about Falcon. We are not going to have Falcon much longer, everyone. And people need to start knowing this now. Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy, they are being made redundant by the people that are building them because they're, they're a stepping stone to Starship. And it'll be really exciting to see how Gerstenmaier gets involved with that because that's such a new extraordinary thing. And I'm sure, you know, Gerst could have went anywhere. We call him Gerst in the industry. He could have gone anywhere. I'm sure he had offers at every company, Virgin, Boeing, Blue Origin. He has experience working with SpaceX already. And I wanted to bring up a quick story from my first official mission as a journalist. After my NASA social days, I was working for the New York Observer. My first resupply mission for them was CRS-7. And as uh, some mm-hmm. of our listeners and readers know, CRS-7 exploded a little bit after a minute and a half into flight over the skies of Cape Canaveral. And it was a disaster. Uh, we lost uh, resupply mission seven. We lost all that, all those supplies. We lost a Dragon, lost a Falcon. It was a we pretty, lost the international docking adapter. The, the, first. Interna- the first international docking adapter. Uh, Microsoft lost their HoloLens prototype. There was a lot of things that were lost on that mission. Right after, there was a little, you know, there was some chaos. It was a, an anomaly. We all got back to the press site. We're all looking for answers. 
The first person that comes out is Gwen Shotwell. She doesn't come out physically. She's in Hawthorne. She calls in and she's on the screen, uh, you know, letting, trying to calm, calm the anxieties, you know, and, th- and that's what she has to do as a leader of SpaceX. Now, the second person to come out following her via satellite from HQ in Washington, D.C., was Gersten Meyer. And he was the utmost professional. He calmed the public. He said, hey, this is space exploration, and we're working the problem. We're figuring out what went wrong, and we're going to get back to it when we get back to it. But he, he wasn't a doomsayer. He was a pragmatist, and he knows how to solve problems one step at a time without being the dreamer. You know, we, the reason he's pushed out is because, uh, in my opinion, uh, politics. You, know, you have a, a White House calling for a, moon, a human moon landing in 2024, and you have sober heads like Gerstenmeier, who obviously are not going to support that idea outright when we have so many obstacles ahead of us. And he was, you know, he was pushed out. So to, this is, in a way, this is a big, ju- this is justice for Gerstenmeier. And it's a big move for SpaceX. And I think this is all coming for us full circle in a way, because if they really all call are calling for a moon 2024 landing with a human in it, I really think that if, and this is just math, Chris, this is not me favoriting one company. You're looking at development of each of these companies. If SpaceX launches humans first, they're the first commercial crew company to launch humans to the space station, then it's entirely fair to say that SpaceX would be in the best position to land humans on the moon using their hardware before anyone else. And that is just math and timeline, and that's my analysis of the situation. You could get there, although I I would caution in the best pragmatic way from Gerstenmeier that you know, there is a lot of development left with Starship. Yes. Oh, tons of it. Tons of it. You know, yes, you know, SpaceX has an immense way of making something, uh, taking something that is incredibly hard and making it look easy. We look forward to that first test hop of Starship, the 20 kilometer hop coming up here no earlier than a month from now per FCC filings. But a long way to go on that. I'm not sure I'm I'm personally ready to weigh in on that, but Gerstenmeier's presence at this company would mm-hmm. certainly certainly gives a leg up to them on on the technical right side. And I think that Jim Bridenstine, he was he said a statement the other day. This is the head of NASA. I think they're going to announce some kind of exploratory landing contract for private companies. Do you have you heard anything about this? that they're probably going to start na- listing companies that are going to explore a lunar landing, right? It would not surprise me. I mean, mm-hmm. that's definitely the way yeah. things are. Right. It's definitely the way things are headed, right? Yeah. I mean, as, as we seek to commercialize low earth orbit and, and lunar exploration and, and stuff like that, oh, you know, more and more companies are going to band together to, to get this done. Right. And I think there's going to be a lot more collaboration than people think, because right now at this time, we look at Boeing, Lockheed, SpaceX, they're all separate entities in a way. But going into the future, looking at five, 10 years from now when Starship is flying and SLS is flying and where, you know, those that that hardware becomes proven and we're past that phase of hardware competition and, and who gets from A to B fastest, you're going to see a lot more collaborative missions administered by NASA, you know, and you look at the commercial crew program, you have Boeing and SpaceX. They're the two providers. There's going to be 
contracts in the future that are lunar lander contracts, deep space contracts, deep space human flight contracts that companies are going to be bidding for. And these, you know, these projects aren't going to be singular. It's not going to be, oh, SpaceX launching Starship to Mars with just SpaceX employees. It'll be NASA astronauts and, and, and input from different places of the space sector. So I think what you're saying, Chris, is it's we're, we don't know yet. <laughs> and we don't know how far, you know, how long it's going to take for Starship to reach orbit. And I personally think that, you know, looking at testing and looking at how SpaceX has failed out in the open and, you know, there's a very big chance that the first Starship could blow up on its first suborbital hop. You know what I mean? So there's so many different things that can happen. But I think going forward, SpaceX and Gerstenmaier is a positive or and I know that some people are looking at it as NASA, you screwed up. You lost this really awesome guy. But Gerstenmaier being at SpaceX also benefits NASA, if that makes sense. Oh, it totally does. Yes, because SpaceX is a force right. to be reckoned with in the entirety of, of the spaceflight community, whether it be satellite launches or human launches or, you know, scientific payload missions. They just won the PACE mission contract to, to launch that for NASA, you know, it's that they, they are a force to be reckoned with. And that's only going to continue as innovation continues at right. that company. Right. So let's go into the other provider here. I just want to give a little bit of background before Chris unpacks this situation. Chris was reporting on this mission, the orbital flight test of the Boeing Starliner capsule, which is their human rated capsule that will launch NASA astronauts to the space station, just like Dragon will. Chris and I were both at that launch at Kennedy Space Center. We worked it in person. We were both invited back to the Starliner facility at Kennedy to visit the spacecraft after it was recovered from the failed mission. I mean, we've discussed this failed mission before. What they told us at that launch, when the incident happened, that there was only one issue at the time. It was this clock timing error. Starliner t thought it was one time when it was not. What we've asked multiple times, are you sure there was not any other issues? Some of us followed up in the weeks that followed, even at that visit. A couple of journalists we were, were like, told point blank right, that there point were blank, no other issues. Yeah. Now, sometimes... We do these episodes. It's a lot of positive news, a lot of, you know, looking forward. But we have to take a pause for a minute here. And I want to say that I'm a little disappointed that we were lied to. And I have to be blunt. And Chris, if you can explain what we learned following that week and following the incident, what did we learn also happened? Yeah. So before we talk about that, there, there are a couple things we need to make. Absolutely, because it can get a little muddy when when we're okay. talking about when we're talking about Boeing. Because so, Boeing's space division is completely separate from its plane division. We need to make that clear. Absolutely In, clear. Inside of Boeing's space division, Starliner is completely separate from SLS and the core stage that Boeing is building. So everything we are about to talk about is in no way a reflection of. SLS or the Artemis mm -hmm. program that Boeing is involved in. And, and, and nothing to do no, with ULA either. Exactly. It, nothing to do with ULA because that Atlas V worked perfectly and ULA has a lot to be proud of with that. They do. Right. So 
Basically, what we learned is that after about seven weeks of publicly being told that there were no other anomalies, there were no other major issues, and I agree with your assessment that, to be blunt, that was a lie. And it was, was, and 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 we were there when we asked those questions, right? Because the two other anomalies to make the three that NASA has talked about, although Jim Bridenstine said there were many, many would to me indicate more than three. So it'll be interesting to see what the final report of the independent review team has to say about how many issues and anomalies there actually were with Starliner. We know of three right now. And all three of them popped up during the mission, became known to everyone within Boeing Space and NASA during the mission. And there were two critical software failures that if the ground had not been able to intervene when they did, and NASA was very blunt about this, would have led to the loss of vehicle of Starliner. So in spaceflight, we have two ways of talking about mission failures when they're catastrophic. We we have what's known as LOV, which is loss of vehicle. Mm -hmm. And that refers to a vehicle that does not have a crew on board. And then we have what's known as LOVC, loss of vehicle and crew. NASA has had two loss of vehicle and crew incidents. Russia has also had two, uh, Challenger Columbia and Soyuz 1 and Soyuz 11. These two software issues were loss of vehicle anomalies. And NASA also blatantly calls them anomalies in... Mm -hmm. Very important distinction. Very important distinction for what's coming because the assertion from NASA, and it was Doug Lavaro, the new head of human space exploration for NASA, which is why I brought him up earlier, Mm -hmm. said during a teleconference on Friday that, or argued that they weren't the second one, the second software issue, which we'll get to in a moment, was not an anomaly because they caught it ahead of time and sent up an emergency software patch to fix it. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, an anomaly doesn't have to take place for it to be an anomaly. There was a software anomaly. Right. They happened to catch beforehand, and Boeing was upfront and honest about saying they would not have caught the second anomaly, which would have destroyed Starliner, according to right. NASA's text release, during reentry had the first issue 31 minutes after liftoff not occurred. So if the first failure didn't happen, the second failure would have destroyed the spacecraft. Correct, because they said, open and honestly, Boeing said that they did not go look for additional software anomalies until the first one occurred. And then they went and they went looking for them and they found this one. And and what this was is it was a... So both of these were coding errors that NASA was very blatant should have been caught by Boeing and also should have been caught by NASA in their review of Boeing's software. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting too, that the external company that NASA and Boeing contracted with to do a third independent verification and review of Starliner software didn't catch it either. I'm going to purposefully stop short of saying that independent review company should have caught it because they there's not enough information 
about what NASA and Boeing turned over to that company. Basically, Mm -hmm. if NASA and Boeing turned over, here's what the software should look like, the software with the errors in it, how would that company that did the independent verification have known it was an error, right? We don't know that. So I'm going to stop short of saying they should have caught it as well. But NASA and Boeing should have. And NASA was very upfront about that. Right. And and right now, Chris, Boeing is looking, is actually reviewing. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the Boeing Starliner capsule is programmed with 1 million lines of code. Yeah, one about a million, yeah, about 1 million with an M mm-hmm. lines of code right. that all now have to be reviewed again. But what this coding error was on the second issue was that when, after Starliner's service module does the deorbit burn at the end of the mission, it does that deorbit burn and then the capsule flips around for service module and capsule separation. And the moment that the pyrotechnics are sever the service module from the crew module, the service module is supposed to instantly do a series of thruster burns to get itself away from the crew module safely so that the crew module can then flip around again and orient heat shield first for reentry. A very critical move. The way the software was coded, the service module would not have done those separation burns. And would have essentially separated and stayed right there. Bumped into each other. So when the crew module went to flip around, it would have slammed itself into the service module. And NASA flat out said that was a loss of vehicle scenario. It would have led to the loss of the vehicle had the ground not interfered. Now, interestingly... Boeing refuted that on the telecon saying, quote, nothing good would have come from it, but seemingly passively refuted the loss of vehicle scenario when asked what would have happened. What's that is just corporate. That's corporate, you know, speak. But what is also, that's corporate yes, speak. <laughs> but what is also interesting and kind of shocking is that both Doug Lavaro and Jim Bridenstein of NASA also refuted loss of crew, saying we don't know what would have happened, directly contradicting the own assessment they did and that the independent review team did, and their own statement published to the NASA website just a few hours prior to that press conference. I'm looking at the thing right now. It says in here, catastrophic failure. That's the word they used. Catastrophic yes, but, failure. But but keep going in there. Search for loss of vehicle in there because they, they yep, do. It's in there too. Music. Yep. Do you want yeah, to they say both. They, too? Yeah, it's pretty long, but you're absolutely right. They say loss of vehicle, LOV. But the the independent team said that if that incident were had to have occurred, the the words here, and, I, and I'm quoting from Chris Davenport in the Washington Post, catastrophic failure. That is what the independent review board said in that in that statement. Yes. So it's um, it's pretty it's pretty you know loss of vehicle that's what that means. <laughs> so well, right. um, it, failure in spaceflight is the loss. I mean, is the loss of the vehicle. And I I want to I want to find that particular quote actually because it is a very important one where where they specifically say loss of vehicle regarding the first. This is a direct quote from the NASA Commercial Crew Program page on NASA.gov and their statement issued on Friday, the 7th of February. Regarding the first two anomalies, the team found the two critical software defects were not detected ahead of flight despite multiple safeguards. 
ground intervention prevented loss of vehicle in both cases. There you have it. That yeah, is direct it's, it's, from NASA it. that yeah. NASA's administrator and the head of human spaceflight passively refuted. What was also absolutely shocking was Doug Lavaro's assertion when Lauren Grush from The Verge asked the question about how long they have known about these failures and these anomalies that Doug Lavaro flat out said that NASA was under no obligation to inform the public or the taxpayer or the media about an issue that they a critical loss of vehicle issue found in flight and fixed because quote, it never happened and you wouldn't want us talking about something that didn't happen, would you? That is the most absurd, backwards, upside down thing I've ever heard from a NASA official regarding this program. From the leader of the human spaceflight program within NASA, saying that NASA as a government taxpayer funded initiative is under no obligation to inform us of critical loss of vehicle scenarios that occurred during flight. Let me tell you something. Gerson Meyer will have never said anything like that. He would never say anything. Bingo. And what is even more shocking about that statement is that it follows the post-launch news conference where Jim Bridenstine asserted that the first software issue would not have been as big of an issue as it was had a crew been on board because Mm -hmm. the crew would have been safe and the crew would have been able to take manual control of Starliner. He Mm -hmm. says that. Then we find out there was another critical loss of vehicle software error. And then Doug Lavaro flat out says that they're under no obligation to tell us anything. Well, that's where we're at with this. And Chris, when when are we getting this report, this full investigation? So, so the independent review team should be done with its assessment and, and have a report by the end of February or beginning of March. There's a third anomaly with an antenna, a communications antenna on right. Starliner that they didn't really go into a lot of detail with because the independent review team is not done really digging down into that. They were, they were really done in large part with the two software anomalies that occurred, which is why we got so much more information on them on Friday. But there is one more that they're they're looking into in terms of the major anomalies that we know of. So we should get that by the end of February or beginning of March. But the big thing here are that there, there appear to be too many escape processes, meaning too many single point failures of software. Which is a little surprising considering the previous human spacecraft for the United States, the space shuttle had five redundant computers where if one string went down, the others just took over. So, mm-hmm. and, and Starliner seemed to have multiple points of single point failure of, of very critical systems. There's definitely software that needs to be rewritten. There's a whole validation and verification process that needs to be reviewed before it can be redone. Uh, you know, Starliner does not appear to be going anywhere. It doesn't appear to be going anywhere anytime soon. Um, exactly when it will fly again is up in the air. Whether or not they will be uh, tasked with redoing and reflying OFT is still unknown, even despite. I don't all see the how they could move, Chris. I don't see how they can move forward without reflying that flight. I, I think don't. they would have a hard time justifying that decision to not refly yeah. it, but. But that's that's an analysis of it. It's what Jim Bridenstine and Boeing both said was that it's too early to talk about that. But 
you know, and Boeing even went, uh, Boeing and NASA even went a step further in that press conference by asserting that you don't do a test flight to find issues and you don't do a test flight to validate issues mm-hmm. that need to be fixed. So it does, you know, you can read that a couple different ways, but it, it could, one way you could read that is these two agencies continuing to set the groundwork for saying OFT was good enough, even though it did not meet all of its contractual obligations that NASA has said they want to hold both commercial crew providers to the contracts that they bring forth. Because what's important here is that the uncrewed flight of Demo-1 of, of Dragon and the orbital flight test of Starliner were not commercial crew NASA-imposed tests. Those were both things that the providers themselves, SpaceX and Boeing, came to NASA and drew up a contract saying, this is what the uncrewed test flights will do for each of these particular missions. And Boeing's contract flat out states that it will demonstrate rendezvous, proximity operations, docking and undocking with the International Space Station, something it did not do. And NASA seems to be setting the groundwork by saying it's too early to talk about this of maybe we're going to let the contract be unfulfilled and say good enough and try to fix the software issues and then validate that those software issues are fixed by putting crew on board. Yeah, well, we'll see. I don't think we'll come to that because I just I, I that would be a shocking turn of events, in my opinion. But we'll leave it there, Chris, because we obviously are waiting for information, waiting for this report to come out. And we'll update our listeners on this situation in a few weeks when we have more. But uh, Chris, we should end this episode on a positive note. We are going to have a Valentine's Day launch. I know you were speaking about docking and undocking to the space station. Yes. Uh, Northrop Grumman, the launch got scrubbed last week, or Sunday, I should say. And now we have a Valentine's Day new net, and Northrop is trying to get its Cygnus with supplies to the International Space Station. Chris, we have like a minute. Can you give us the roundabout for this mission in a minute? Yeah. So the Cygnus spacecraft on the 13th resupply mission from Northrop Grumman is set to launch on Valentine's Day at 4.43 p.m. Eastern Time here in the United States, 9.43 p.m. UTC. It will bring about 7,300 pounds of cargo and supplies up to the International Space Station, including numerous science experiments. It will be The second time that two Cygnus spacecraft are in orbit at the same time, the NG-12 vehicle was unberthed from the station on the 31st of January and is still flying up there. But it should be a pretty cool Valentine's Day launch for Cygnus from the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport on Wallops Island in Virginia. And we wish best of luck to Northrop Grumman and, and the teams for that. The thing that got them on Sunday, which would have been a really cool doubleheader of rocket launches off the East Coast, but yeah. there was a sensor on the ground support equipment for some of the fueling systems that are used. So not a problem with the rocket, but mm-hmm. a suspect sensor that they just couldn't get comfortable with what that sensor was doing to be comfortable with launching. So they erred on the side of caution and stood down. And you know, as, as one of my colleagues, Doss, said, you, you would much rather be on the ground wishing you were flying than be in the air flying and wishing you were on the ground. I love that quote. And a uh, shout out to Doss because I love that guy. What time is the launch on Valentine's Day, Chris? 4.43 p.m. Eastern time. Oh, see, now that is a date time. You and your significant other should watch a rocket launch on Valentine's Day on the live webcast on NASA.gov. 
You're welcome, NASA. Chris, thank you so much for being on this episode. And for our listeners, thank you for tuning in again. And we will have updates for you next week. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Rob. Always a pleasure.